Um, I am an interventional cardiologist, which means that I am trained to be able to open up blocked arteries in the setting of a heart attack um, and can literally save a patient's life. But as a preventive cardiologist, I can use that knowledge to prevent another heart attack or prevent a heart attack from happening, perhaps even in the first place. I wrote a book, um, The Vegan Heart Doctor's Guide to Reversing Heart Disease, Losing Weight and Reclaiming Your Life. And I, I share it in my passion for educating patients to tell people about what heart disease is, risk factors, and what you proactively can do to reduce your risk. So I talk a lot about much of what I'm gonna be discussing today about um, diet and exercise and lifestyle and how you can bring it all together to keep your heart healthy. So heart disease is, is prevalent. Um, by the numbers um, of those people who have heart attacks, 20% are silent heart attacks. Heart attacks are the number one leading cause of death both for both men and women in the United States. And an important number is that 80% of heart attacks and strokes can be prevented by being proactive with a healthy lifestyle. So the number one cause of death is heart disease. And shortly behind that is stroke, um, which has similar risk factors as, as heart disease. So when we're talking about heart disease in particular, I am gonna be for the most part speaking about coronary artery disease, which is plaque in the arteries of the heart. Other forms of heart disease are congestive heart failure, which is a condition in which the heart cannot handle the volume of fluid in the body. Hypertension, also high, which is also known as high blood pressure. Arrhythmias, which are abnormal rhythms. Valve disease, which is disease of the valves that permit flow between the different chambers of the heart and congenital abnormalities, which are abnormalities that can be present in birth. So there's a broad spectrum of issues of the heart that I treat, but for the most part, I'm gonna be speaking about coronary artery disease today. What is coronary artery disease? Coronary artery disease is plaque within the arteries of the heart. Now the heart is a large muscle that sits in the left side of our chest. And being that it is a muscle, it requires nutrients. So blood is pumped through the arteries of the heart, the coronary arteries, to supply oxygen and nutrients to the heart tissue. Now, a procedure to open up an artery of the heart is called a coronary angioplasty. So as an interventional cardiologist, I can put my catheters into the body, either from the groin or the right femoral artery, or from the wrist, the right radial artery, and I can feed my catheters up to the heart inject dye, see where the arteries flow, see if there are significant blockages. If I do see a significant blockage, I can pass a wire through the blockage and then pass a balloon along that wire, inflate that balloon to push the plaque out of the way, and then ultimately put a tube in called a stent to hold the artery open. 
This is a sample of a cardiac catheterization laboratory where coronary angiograms and angioplasties take place. You can see that um, there's a table and there's a patient lying on the table covered in a blue drape. There are two people standing at the side of the table. The person who is the furthest from the front of the screen would be probably the cardiologist, the interventional cardiologist, and the person, the other person, the, the gentleman who appears to be wearing the red cap appears to be the technician who is helping him or her with the procedure, with the equipment. The screens in front of them show the arteries of the body and show hemodynamics and um, an EKG tracing to help them to do their work. Bypass surgery. So what is bypass surgery? A bypass surgery involves cutting the chest open, spreading the ribs, and putting in vessels to literally bypass significant blockages. So it doesn't open up any arteries. It doesn't clean out any arteries. It just provides a passage around a blockage. Now, these bypass conduits can come from a couple of different places. It can come from the legs. We have what's called our greater saphenous vein. It's an extra vein in our leg that we really don't need, and it can be removed and can be sewn in to the chest wall. In particular, it can be sewn to the aorta and then sewn to one of the arteries of the heart to allow blood to bypass through it. Unfortunately, these vein bypasses aren't terribly sturdy at about 10 years after a open heart bypass surgery, half of those veins are no longer open. Now, a bypass using an artery, um, which is typically the left internal mammary artery, it's an artery that runs along our chest wall, and it's an extra artery that we don't need, it can be rerouted onto the heart to allow for blood to bypass narrowings in the left side of the heart. Those bypasses, specifically the left internal mammary artery, that bypass tends to be stable and open for usually the duration of a person's life without, without any exceptions for the most part. Now, risk factors for coronary artery disease. There are things we can change. There are things we can't change. The things we can't change are our genetics or our gender. So men tend to have heart disease at younger ages than women do. But after menopause, women tend to catch up. So that gap becomes less and less as we get older. But there are a number of modifiable risk factors. Smoking is a big one. Quitting smoking can definitely very significantly reduce the risk of developing coronary artery disease or events. Diet, eating a healthy diet is important. And I'm going to talk more about that. Exercise, controlling blood pressure, controlling cholesterol, um, controlling diabetes and managing stress also are modifiable risk factors that can help to reduce the risk for coronary artery disease and heart attacks. Now, in the United States, what we eat is not necessarily geared for health. So only 9% of our calories come from vegetables, fruits, and legumes. 22% come from grains, 30% come from animal products, and 39% come from added fats, oil, and sugar. So not a pattern of eating that really is sustainable for, for optimal health, unfortunately. Now, studies worldwide have shown that diets 
that are more plant-based have a lower risk of heart disease, hypertension or high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, intestinal disorders, several kinds of cancers, including colon, esophageal, and prostate cancer, osteoporosis, kidney stones, and gallstones. A quote that I like from Dr. Colin Campbell, author of the China study, is the vast majority of all cancers, cardiovascular disease, and other forms of degenerative illness can be prevented simply by adopting a plant-based diet. Now, what is in a plant-based diet? And to be clear, I'm not specifically talking about a vegan diet. Vegan means no animal products, and that doesn't necessarily equate to a healthy diet. So things that are vegan are sodas and potato chips and candies and French fries, which aren't necessarily the most health-promoting foods. A plant-based diet for the sense of for this presentation would be a diet that contains plenty of vegetables, grains, beans, fruits, nuts, and seeds, no animal process, no animal products may include some smartly processed foods like tofu, plant milks, tempeh, and dried fruits. And foods that are more heavily processed are minimal in the diet. Now, plant-based diets are appropriate for all stages of life. Now, this is from the position of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, their point on vegetarian diets. It is their position that an appropriately vegetarian, an appropriately planned vegetarian or vegan diet is healthful and nutritionally adequate and may provide health benefits for the prevention and treatment of certain diseases. These diets are appropriate for all stages of the life cycle, including pregnancy, lactation, infancy, childhood, adolescence, older adulthood, and for athletes. Um, Plant-based diets are more environmentally sustainable than diets rich in animal products because they use fewer natural resources and are associated with much less environmental damage. Vegetarian and vegans are at reduced risk of certain health conditions, including ischemic heart disease, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, certain types of cancer, and obesity. That's my daughter, Ava. That's a picture from, I believe she was two and a half years old in that picture, and she's helping me to make dinner. Um, there's some broccoli, there's a strawberry that she's snacking on, and a little piece of tofu that she was snacking on as well. So um, plant-based diets, good for all ages. Blue zones. Blue zones are areas of the world where people tend to have exceptional longevity, where you see people who are frequently in their 90s or even 100s and still living well and active and healthy. Now, the areas of the world where we consider blue zones are Loma Linda, California, Nicoya, Costa Rica, Sardinia, Italy, Ikaria, Greece, and Okinawa, Japan. Now, there are certain things that the, air, the blue zones tend to have in common. Um, they have several things in common. One of them is a predominantly plant-based diet, but also that they have extensive family connections, minimal smoking, people tend to be socially engaged and engaged in constant moderate physical activity. I have a quote from Dr. 
Kim Williams, who is also, I believe, featured in this seven day, uh, the 17 day um, series of lectures. There are two kinds of cardiologists, vegans and those who haven't read the data. So we are going to delve in and talk about the data. And this, this slide is dated because um, Dr. Williams is now affiliated with a, a different institution, but the um, sentiment remains. The Ornish Lifestyle Program. Now, Dean Ornish designed a program for heart health. It wasn't just diet. It did include a low-fat vegetarian diet, moderate exercise, stress management, quitting smoking, and group support. His diet consisted of a large quantity of fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes, and soy. He did not provide any type of caloric restrictions, but based on the content of the diet, fewer than 10% of calories came from fat. There were no animal products allowed except for egg whites and one cup per day of non-fat milk or yogurt. There was no caffeine allowed and very limited amounts of alcohol. Now, in Dr. Ornish's lifestyle heart trial, he separated his patients into an experimental group and a control group. So the experimental group, they were counseled on the Ornish style diet. They um, attended group support programs. They were um, educated on how to quit smoking, how to exercise. There was a lot of intervention in addition to the diet. The control group, they were not counseled beyond just eat healthy. Um, the experimental group actually had reversal of their average coronary narrowing on, on something called a quantitative coronary angiogram. So the average narrowing decreased from 40 to 37.8%. Whereas in the control group, the people who did not engage in this program, they had progression of their average coronary narrowing from 42.7% to 46.1%. Now this seems like a small differences, but it's important to note that there was in this study found to be reversal because typically the natural course of coronary artery disease, we consider it to be that people progress and have continued development of plaque within their arteries. So to see something that may have yielded reversal is a big deal. Um, in those in the experimental group, they had less angina or heart-related chest pain. It was decreased by 91%, whereas the control group had an increase in their heart-related chest pain by 165%. And of those in the experimental group, 82% of all the patients had some degree of regression or reversal of their coronary narrowings. Now, another study to look at dietary intervention for heart disease was undertaken by Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, and he called his work arrest and reversal therapy. So in his initial study in the 1980s and 1990s, he took on patients who had severe triple vessel coronary artery disease. And these were pretty sick people. He put them on a strict vegetarian diet. He recruited only 21 patients, 17 followed the diet, and 11 of them had a full set of data collected, including coronary angiogram data. So his diet allowed whole grains, legumes, lentils, vegetables, and fruit. He did not allow nuts, oil, seeds, 
avocados or any animal products. So this is more than just a vegan diet. This is a, a very low fat vegan diet. Now the, to better demonstrate just how sick these patients were, in the 11 patients on whom we have complete data, um, in the eight years prior to being enrolled in the study, they had a total of 37 events, 15 events of increased angina or heart-related chest pain, six had documented progression of the plaque buildup in their arteries, six had bypass surgeries, four had heart attacks, three strokes, two angioplasties, and one had a stress test that demonstrated worsening. But after the study, in the 11 patients who, were follow who followed the diet over 10 years, there were zero events. Again, it's a small population, but a big difference. This is an example of the coronary angiogram of one of those patients. So on the left is a before picture of the left anterior descending artery, and on the right is an after picture. So you can see where there's um, and our, the artery looks nice and plump, and then you can see that it becomes more narrowed. Um, and then just a couple, um, 32 months later, you can see that artery appears plumped up, and this is without uh, the patient having any type of balloons or stents put in their arteries, and even in this particular case without a cholesterol-lowering medication. This is another coronary angiogram, this patient, um, Similarly, before and after this patient was also on a cholesterol-lowering medication. Now, an interesting quote from Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn from Forks Over Knives is, some people think the plant-based whole foods diet is extreme. Half a million a year will have their chests opened up and a vein taken from their leg and sewn onto their coronary artery. Some people would call that extreme. This is a coronary PET scan. So this is a nuclear scan measuring blood flow. These pictures are before and three weeks after following a plant-based diet. So the before picture, you can see where the arrow is, there's an area of black. Um, that is an area of the heart where there is not a lot of blood flow. But after just three weeks of a plant-based diet, the pictures demonstrate a whole lot more vibrant color, suggesting that there is more blood flow to this territory of the heart. So pictures demonstrating um, that a plant-based diet is increasing blood flow to this portion of the heart. So I'm gonna tell you about one of my patients and he's a patient I talk about in my book. So he's a 55 year old man, who came in to see me in my office, um, he was having exertional chest pain. So he would walk or he'd exercise and he'd get chest pain. This just didn't seem right to him. He was on medicine for high blood pressure, but otherwise no other medications, no other medical problems. I put him through a stress test and he got on the treadmill and he developed chest pain and his EKG showed changes. So it was a very abnormal stress test. I put, I had him undergo a coronary angiogram. We found that he had a pretty severe narrowing in one of his arteries. Um, and I went ahead and I went put a stent in. So as I always do with all my patients, we talk about lifestyle changes and diet. And what he did next, he adopted a plant-based diet. He started exercising regularly, particularly cycling. As he progressed with his 
healthy exercise and diet, his blood pressure naturally came down. He no longer needed to be on blood pressure medicine, though he did continue to be on an aspirin and a cholesterol lowering medicine or statin, which is appropriate for anybody who has coronary artery disease. And he's had no further cardiac events. So I took care of him for about six or seven years until I, um, I moved to another and opened up my own practice and he moved to another area. So I lost touch with him and I've, and then he reached out to me, sent me this message. Good day, Dr. Shankman. I'm a former patient of yours. Of course, I remembered well who you performed an angiogram and stent on in 2014. I just wanted to touch base and let you know that I'm doing well, no cardiac issues, just received a cardiac PET scan and an echocardiogram last week. All was very good. I've been retired for two years now, still a vegan, bikes 50 to 70 miles a week. I again wanted to thank you for your life-changing guidance. Right. And then this is Bill Clinton. He underwent coronary bypass surgery in 2004. He then underwent an angioplasty in 2010 to open up a diseased bypass graft. It was a, a vein bypass graft that had closed off. Now, after that, he adopted a mostly plant-based diet, lost weight, and since that time has not had any further cardiac issues. Now, the question, of course, is what if I adopt a more plant-based diet, don't necessarily go 100% vegan, um, which I, I think is a reasonable question to ask. Now, the Lion Heart Study, this was done in the late 1990s, the study took on patients who had a history of a heart attack and it tested the effects of a Mediterranean style diet compared to a Western diet. Now the experimental group underwent changes to their diet to make it a more Mediterranean diet. They were urged to consume more vegetables and fruit. Um, they were encouraged to consume less red meat and more so-called white meats. Uh, and they replaced their butter and cream with a margarine that's high in alpha-linolenic acid, which is an omega-3 fatty acid. Now, the patients who underwent a Mediterranean-style diet had a 50 to 70% lower risk of recurrence of heart disease. And this is a chart demonstrating the reduction. So the furthest to the left is 100%. And as we go along over the course of the years, the people on the Mediterranean diet versus those who were on the Western style diet, those on the Western style diet had more events occur. Now, looking at the types of diets, there's a lot of diets out there and dietary patterns. And the US News and World Report uh, puts together their list of best diets. And that's evaluated by physicians and nutritionists and other experts in, in nutrition. And the diets that they rank the highest, like the DASH diet, the Mediterranean diet, flexitarian, Ornish, um, these diets tend to be predominantly plant-based, if not fully plant-based diets. Um, the diets at the bottom of the list, namely paleo and keto, because these were literally the bottom of the list. Um, these are diets that are higher in animal products. So in general, diets that tend to be more plant-based tend to be healthier for the heart. Even our societies are starting to recognize that um, 
the promotion of plant-based eating is going to be beneficial for our patients for their health. This is from the American College of Cardiology. This is a handout for patients to advise them as to how they should be structuring their plates. And they do talk about specifically vegetarian and vegan diets as reasonable options. But again, if you look at the plate, the plate is mostly fruits and vegetables. Next, I wanna talk a little bit about blood pressure. Um, blood pressure is an important thing to talk about because it's so prevalent and it is an important risk factor for heart attack and stroke. So high blood pressure or hypertension is a blood pressure that is consistently over 130 over 80. Now, nearly half of all Americans have hypertension. Hypertension is known as the silent killer because you can be walking around with a very high blood pressure and not even know it, but that high blood pressure is increasing your risk of heart attack and stroke because it is causing changes inside of your body. Now, what is a blood pressure? The blood pressure is a measurement of the systolic and the diastolic blood pressure. The systolic is the top number, it's the highest number of the two, and it is a measure of the maximal pressure in the arteries during a heartbeat. The diastolic blood pressure is the bottom number. It is the lowest pressure between heartbeats when the heart is more relaxed. Now, the consequences of uncontrolled hypertension, there are many consequences. So heart attack and stroke, definitely um, vision loss because high blood pressure causes changes within the eyes, kidney disease or kidney failure because high blood pressure does cause changes to how the kidneys function. Congestive heart failure can also be a consequence of uncontrolled high blood pressure and sexual dysfunction, particularly in, in men, the inability to get an adequate erection with sexual activity. This is a public service announcement from the American Heart Association, um, just to demonstrate that this is what high blood pressure looks like. You don't necessarily see your blood pressure being high, but it has consequences and it can cause things like in this woman's case, unfortunately, a stroke. And this gentleman, his uncontrolled blood pressure was a factor in his coronary artery disease. And he's demonstrating a scar on his chest wall, presumably from a coronary bypass surgery. Risk factors for high blood pressure or hypertension are very similar to the risk factors for heart disease. Um, smoking, poor diet choices, diabetes, family history, high cholesterol, age, because as we get older, our, our blood pressure does go up in general with stiffening of the arteries. Um, high cholesterol raises blood pressure, um, weight, the heavier you are, the higher your blood pressure may be. Not being active, a sedentary lifestyle definitely raises the blood pressure. Exercise lowers the blood pressure. Salt or sodium consumption raises blood pressure. Alcohol consumption raises blood pressure, and so does stress. So how is blood pressure taken? Now, you're accustomed to being in, in a doctor's office and you have a cuff, cuff put on your arm. So the cuff is wrapped around the, the upper arm and it is inflated with air and it is inflated to a pressure that is higher than what is in the artery. And then it, the blood pressure is, the cuff is gradually released and the point at which a stethoscope starts hearing 
a heartbeat. That is what the systolic or top blood pressure is. So the cuff is causing you to hear beats because it's basically causing the flow through there to be turbulent because of the pressure. Once the cuff is deflated beyond below the diastolic or, or lowest blood pressure in the arteries, you will cease hearing any noises. Now, how to get an accurate blood pressure reading. And unfortunately, this is not what's done in a lot of doctor's offices. So should be seated in a comfortable chair, feet flat on the floor, back against the back of the chair, relaxed, having emptied your bladder, um, legs uncrossed, feet supported on the floor, the arm supported at heart level, the arm, the cuff on a bare arm, and no talking. And having rested in that chair for at least a few minutes before the blood pressure was checked. Now, when measuring a blood pressure at home, it is preferable to use an arm cup, cup that goes over the upper arm as opposed to a cup that goes around the wrist. How often should you check your blood pressure? My answer would be no more than twice in a day. Once you get beyond that, you're just making yourself crazy and it ceases to be productive. Um, don't check blood pressure when first waking up. Don't check blood pressure at night. Don't check your blood pressure when you're anxious or upset. Um, avoid food, caffeine, alcohol, or tobacco for about 30 minutes around the time that the blood pressure is checked. Sit quietly. Make sure that the cuff is something that is accurate. If you have a home blood pressure cuff, at some point you should probably take it to your doctor's office and just make sure that it correlates with the blood pressure that they're getting there. Now, home blood pressure in general will typically be five points lower than in the doctor's office. But that said, there's a subset of the population who have what we call white coat hypertension and their blood pressure is significantly higher in the doctor's office than it is in their home setting. Now, there are several categories of blood pressure. Normal would be somebody who naturally without medication has a systolic blood pressure that's less than 120 and a diastolic blood pressure that's less than 80. Elevated is considered to be a systolic blood pressure 120 to 129 with a diastolic less than 80. High blood pressure or stage one hypertension would be a systolic blood pressure of 130 to 139 over or a diastolic of 80 to 89. Now stage two hypertension would be a systolic blood pressure of 140 or higher with a diastolic of 90 or higher. Now a hypertensive crisis would be a blood pressure systolic that's higher than 180 and or a diastolic blood pressure that's higher than 120. Now, white coat hypertension, I briefly talked about this. Now, office blood pressures um, that are higher than 130 over 80, but with out-of-office readings that tend to be less than that. So before you accept the diagnosis of hypertension based on your blood pressures in the office, make sure you've checked your blood pressure outside of the doctor's office on several occasions. Now, how do we treat high blood pressure? Lifestyle is always the first line of therapy. Um, diet, so lower, a diet that's lower in sodium, less than 2,300 milligrams daily, 
getting enough exercise, 150 to 250 minutes a week of aerobic exercise, weight control, um, a more plant-based diet, less sweets, sugary beverages, red meat saturated in trans fats, quitting smoking and minimizing alcohol. Now, diet definitely has an impact on blood pressure. So this is looking at the odds ratio for high blood pressure by dietary pattern. So those who are meat eaters tend to be the most likely to have high blood pressure. Those who are semi-vegetarians, slightly less likely. Vegetarians, less likely. Vegans, the least likely to have elevated blood pressure. In addition, there are definitely proven interventions for lowering blood pressure. This is from the National Institutes for Health. Um, and there are a number of interventions with lifestyle and they each have a significant impact. So weight loss, um, if you lose one kilogram of body weight or about 2.2 pounds, you can expect a one millimeter mercury drop in your blood pressure. So for somebody with high blood pressure, we can anticipate that weight loss will lead to on average about a five millimeter of mercury drop in blood pressure. A healthy diet, particularly what we call the DASH diet, which is a, a diet that is designed for blood pressure, lots of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, and we'll talk a little bit more about this diet. Um, making a diet change from a much less healthy diet can lower the blood pressure by up to 11 points. Reducing diet sodium and consuming more potassium can also significantly lower the blood pressure. Other interventions, physical activity, whether that be aerobic exercise or resistance training, both are potent in lowering blood pressure and moderation in alcohol intake. If you're somebody who consumes several alcoholic beverages per week, if you cut back to less than one drink per day, you can significantly lower your blood pressure. Now, back in the day, before there was um, blood pressure medication, there was Dr. Walter Kempner's rice diet. So in the early 1940s, there were no medications available to treat high blood pressure. So he came up with this diet that is pretty radical and restrictive. It was white rice, fruit, juice, and sugar. And that was it when initially starting to treat patients with blood pressure. So most patients who consumed this rice diet saw a drastic improvement in their blood pressure. They also had a massive amount of weight loss, their cholesterol lowered, their heart size decreased, and they had less damage to their eyes or retinopathy from their, their high blood pressure. So what's in a rice diet? So the diet is almost entirely rice and fruit. It had about four to 5% of its content from protein, two to 3% from fat, only 150 milligrams of sodium. And on this diet, exercise was encouraged. So this is a chart of one patient who started the diet. And he was a 51-year-old man who had heart disease and high blood pressure and eye changes from blood pressure. He came into this with a blood pressure of about 198 over 122. He then started on the rice diet and both his systolic and his diastolic blood pressures came down. So he was at 130 over about 85 on just dietary intervention alone. Um, these are a couple of pictures of before and after the rice diet. 
Now, just to be clear in the current day and age, the Walter Kempner Rice diet is not an appropriate treatment for hypertension for many reasons. Um, mainly that the nu nutrient content of his diet is not something that is sustainable long-term for health. It's, it's very, very low in protein, very, very low in many nutrients. So not a treatment that we use in this day and age, but back in the day in the 1940s, when we had nothing else to lower blood pressure, it had some role. Now the DASH eating plan or the DASH diet is a diet that was specifically designed to treat and reduce the risk of hypertension. It's a diet that has plenty of grains and vegetables and fruits. It also contains low fat or fat-free dairy products, meats, poultry, and fish, um, nuts, seeds, dried beans, and peas, um, two to three servings of fats and oils, and five or fewer servings of sweets per week. Now, a quote from that paper I think is very interesting. So the diet design goals were to create patterns that would have the blood pressure lowering benefits of a vegetarian diet, yet contain enough animal products to make them palatable to non-vegetarians. Um, it's an interesting admission by the, the authors of the, the paper. So are there alternatives to treat high blood pressure? And I would say, yes, there definitely are. There are yoga, tai chi, qigong, and meditation definitely can lower blood pressure. There are certain supplements that can lower blood pressure as well that will have a small impact. So high doses of omega-3 fatty acids, coenzyme Q10, L-arginine, hibiscus tea, and ground flax seeds. But you gotta eat a lot of flax seeds to lower your blood pressure. Um, omega-3 fatty acids in high doses, they do lower the blood pressure, but they also can increase risk of atrial fibrillation. So there should definitely be some caution before deciding to consume large quantities of omega-3s if just looking to lower the blood pressure. Now, medications for blood pressure, because ultimately people may need medication for their blood pressure. Now, medicine is never a forever thing. And I tell all my patients who I put on blood pressure medication um, that if you make lifestyle changes or something changes over time and the blood pressure naturally comes down, we reevaluate the medicines. We may cut them back. We may cut them out. Um, and to be clear, I do have many plant-based diet patients who are on excellent diets who, you know, in spite of their, their best diet, their best lifestyle, do benefit from and need medication to lower their blood pressure to adequate numbers. So it is never a failure on the part of a person if they need medicine to lower their blood pressure in order to be healthy. Now, first line choices for blood pressure medications include what we call thiazide diuretics, including hydrochlorothiazide, chlorthalidone, or indafamine. Um, ARB agents, ACE inhibitors, or calcium channel blockers. Now, beyond that, beta blockers can be used if there is an underlying issue such as coronary artery disease and arrhythmia or congestive heart failure. There's another medication called spironolactone, which is a good blood pressure medication as well that is good as an add-on. Now, my strategy with controlling blood pressure is I'll start with one medication or a low dose combination of medicines over time if the blood pressure is not under control. 
while continuing to emphasize healthy lifestyle, I will gradually increase the dose and potentially add on medicine until the blood pressure is controlled. It's a slow step-by-step -step process because the last thing I want to do is to lower the blood pressure too much and cause problems and falling and passing out and things of that sort. Now, one, one medicine alone very rarely will control blood pressure. The average person with high blood pressure is actually on three medicines if they need medicine for blood pressure. Uh, medicines are to be taken daily. They're not to be taken on an as-needed basis. Taking blood pressure medicine as needed does not reduce risk of heart disease. It just, in, it just causes the blood pressure to be more labile. Um, the goal of blood pressure with treatment is to get the blood pressure in most under 130 over 80, not to get the blood pressure down to 120 over 80, which would be a normal in somebody who is not on medicines. But also to clarify goals for blood pressure of people who are older, we definitely don't lower the blood pressure to 130 over 80 because as people get older, it's thought that they may actually need a little bit more pressure to the brain. So why might blood pressure not be controlled in somebody who's on medication? Could be because they're not taking their medication properly or not taking their medicines every day. Um, could be their diet. They may be eating a lot of restaurant food. There could be pain, anxiety, stress, all of which can drive the blood pressure up. Sleep apnea, which is a condition in which the oxygen levels drop dangerously low at night and cause changes to the arteries and blood pressure during the day. Sleep apnea is a big cause behind a lot of uncontrolled high blood pressure. Alcohol consumption, excessive alcohol raises blood pressure. Changes in weight or weight gain drives the blood pressure. Um, another thing that I've noted is overzealous blood pressure checking. So there's the person who checks their blood pressure and sees that it's high. And then five minutes later, let me see if my blood pressure has come down. Check their blood pressure again. It's still high. And then check it again. It's still high. And going to work themselves up into this frenzy. So how I get my patient's blood pressures under control. I like to set realistic expectations for my patients that it's, you know, it's not going to be overnight. It's going to take some time to get the blood pressure under control. I make sure that my patients bring me readings from home. I check that their blood pressure cuff is accurate. I make sure that the list of medicines that they bring me is accurate. I never trust what the pharmacy says they're taking or what their primary care doctor says they're taking. I want to know from the source, from the patient, what they are actually taking for blood pressure. I like to assess for whether patients are actually taking the medicines, if they're having any side effects from the medicines. Um, I may gradually increase the doses of medication um, if the blood pressure is not under control. I always talk about lifestyle every visit when we're talking about blood pressure control because lifestyle is an important part of controlling blood pressure. I also encourage communication between visits if problems arise and make sure my patients know they can call me, they can email me to let me know that something is working, something's not working, or the blood pressures are suddenly higher than what they were previously. Next, I want to talk a little bit about cholesterol because cholesterol is, is an important thing. Um, cholesterol is a waxy substance that our body needs in order to function properly. We, we need it for our nerves to work. We need it for our brain to work. Um, and our body makes all the cholesterol that we need. We don't, we don't need to eat anything to get more cholesterol into our body makes. Um, sources of cholesterol is what our liver makes and dietary cholesterol or animal foods. Cholesterol is carried 
throughout the bloodstream by what we call lipoproteins. So there's LDL, which is so, the so-called bad cholesterol, but it's not actually cholesterol. It is a lipoprotein that carries cholesterol. And what the LDL lipoproteins do is they transport cholesterol from the liver to the cells. And in particular, when they, they transport cholesterol to the arteries, it can increase plaque buildup and ultimately plaque rupture, heart attack, stroke, and that whole cascade. HDL or high density lipoproteins basically does the opposite. It carries cholesterol back to the liver to be broken down and removed from the body. Now, it is important to know that the higher the cholesterol level, the higher the lifetime risk of coronary disease. So if you have a cholesterol that's under 200, your risk for heart disease is going to be lower than those who have cholesterols that are higher in this particular. These are total cholesterol levels that the study is looking at. Now the EPIC study looked at total cholesterols based on diet. So the more plant-based the diet, the lower the cholesterol levels were. So Meat eaters tended to have an average cholesterol level of 204. Fish eaters, one, those are pescatarians, 196. Vegetarians, an average cholesterol of 188. And vegans, an average total cholesterol of 170. Plant-based diets, definitely lower cholesterol. This was a analysis that was done in 2009. This looked at a number of studies, particularly studies that um, had a plant-based group versus a control group as a comparator. And if you look at the, there's the number zero at the bottom and the, to the left, that is a difference or lowering to the right, that is a raising or higher. So across the board, total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol were lower in plant-based diet groups compared to the control groups with the animal products. Interestingly, the HDL cholesterol or HDL lipoprotein levels in some groups, they dropped in others, they, they went up. Um, and in general, HDL cholesterol is for the most part genetically determined. There's not a lot that we can do to substantially raise HDL cholesterol. One of my patients is a woman who's 53 years old. And this is what happened with her cholesterol. She was 53 years old, had high cholesterol. She had no other cardiac risk factors. She's somebody who was interested in plant-based diet and she, she took it on head first and adopted a healthy plant-based diet. Her total cholesterol went from 252 down to 192. Her LDL cholesterol dropped from 164 down to 106. And then um, looking two years later, um, she sustained those drops. Total cholesterol is 187, LDL was 100. So this is somebody who, with a plant-based diet alone, was able to lower her very high cholesterol levels. Now, medicines also can lower cholesterol and reduce events. So this down, this up here, this is called secondary prevention. So these are people who have already had disease. They've already had heart attacks and strokes. When we look at their LDL cholesterol on the um, x-axis versus event rate, the higher the cholesterol, the higher the event rate. Oops. The higher the event rate, 
the lower the cholesterol, the lower the event rate. And similarly, primary prevention. So primary prevention, those are people who have not had heart attacks or strokes. There is a similar linear relationship, but it's not quite as steep because people who have not had an event yet are lower risk people. But nonetheless, several trials have demonstrated that lower, um, lower cholesterol, lower event rate. So let's talk about statins. Statins are a type of cholesterol medicine. They are the most prevalent type of cholesterol lowering medication. They're also called HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors. What they do is they block production of cholesterol by the liver. Um, they can stabilize and they can reduce plaque burden in the arteries and they can and do reduce the risk of heart attack and stroke. Who should be on a statin medicine for secondary prevention? And it would be argued that just about anybody who can tolerate a statin medicine who has had a cardiac event should be on a statin. So people who've had a heart attack or a stroke or a history of angina or heart-related chest pain, anyone with a history of a prior stent or a bypass surgery of the heart and anybody with peripheral vascular disease should be on a statin. Now, what about primary prevention? Now, that's an area that's a little bit more gray and whether or not somebody should be on a statin or cholesterol lowering medication really depends on what their risk is. So our, our societies recommend that any diabetic over the age of 40 should be on a statin. Anybody with an LDL cholesterol over the over 190 should be on a statin. And when we see LDL cholesterols that are over 190, we consider that to be familial hypercholesterolemia, because even people who have like a terrible diet and don't exercise, usually don't have cholesterol that are quite that high. It's usually, if you see an LDL cholesterol that high, it's usually some sort of genetic predisposition that causes that. And unfortunately, even if that person has a pretty healthy lifestyle and diet, that high LDL cholesterol is going to increase their risk. So we recommend lowering it with statin therapy in addition to all the good lifestyle stuff. Um, other people, depending on their risk of developing heart disease, we may recommend a statin. Um, one thing I like to do is I like to make it a, a decision, a conversation. So I don't like to necessarily tell my patients, you need a statin. We will often talk about what a person's risk is based on their gender, um, their age, their blood pressure, their actual cholesterol numbers. Um, and we can usually calculate a risk. If that risk is greater than 7.5% over the course of 10 years of having a heart attack or a stroke, typically um, our guidelines suggest that we can recommend that that is somebody who should be on a statin medication. One thing I didn't mention here, and I, I really should have, is the role of a coronary calcium scan. So, um, a coronary calcium scan is a CAT scan that can be done of the heart. It is very low in radiation. And what it does is it basically counts pixels of calcium. If you have a score of zero, then you have essentially no calcified plaque of the heart and your risk of having a heart attack or a stroke in the next five years is close to zero. So a statin is not something that's going to meaningfully reduce your risk if your risk is close to zero anyways. But if you do have calcium in the arteries of your heart, if you do have a coronary calcium score that is greater than zero, in particular, if your score is greater than 100, and especially if your score is greater than 400, you would be somebody who 
should be on a statin because coronary calcium scores, the higher they are, the higher the risk of heart attack and stroke. And when you have a greater risk, a statin will be more potent at reducing your risk. Now, I wanna talk a little bit about myths and truths about statin, because there's a lot out there that isn't necessarily accurate. So there's the myth that statins will hurt my liver. Um, it is exceedingly rare to have an injury to the liver due to, due to a statin. In fact, when we see liver enzymes that are abnormal more often than not, it is something else that's causing that, not the, necessarily the statin. So for example, um, fatty liver is a condition that's fairly prevalent that can cause elevation of liver function tests. Another myth, statin will cause muscle aches. And there's some truth to this because Muscle aches do occur in about 5 to 10% of all people taking statins. The muscle aches will typically stop with stopping the statin, and they do not cause permanent damage. In somebody who has a muscle ache on one statin, more often than not, we can switch them to a different statin, and they will not have the muscle aches, or we can change the dosing. For example, there's a, a statin called rosuvastatin, which is long-acting. Its brand name is Crestor, and it can even be dosed once every week and still have potent effects to lower the cholesterol. Another myth, statins cause diabetes. Now the truth is that statins do slightly increase the glucose level, but it doesn't take somebody who's got a normal glucose level and turn them into a, a full-blown diabetic. It'll take somebody who's fasting glucose is perhaps on the cusp and may just kind of tip them over into the diabetic range. But that said, statins, provide benefits to the whole body in terms of reducing risk of heart attack and strokes. So the benefit more often than not outweighs the risk. Myth, statins cause dementia. Now there is no proven link between statins and dementia. Um, there is very rarely the patient who has what is called brain fog on statin medication, and that can often be resolved by switching to a different statin. Um, but that said, statins actually reverse plaque in the arteries, including the arteries of the brain, and can actually reduce the risk of memory problems. So more often than not, statins can actually reduce the risk of memory impairment as people get older. Um, another myth, Dr. Shankman is a shill for big statin. The truth is I have no money to be made here off of getting people to be on statins. Most statins are now generic. So I, I present the data. I get no financial benefit from anybody taking their atorvastatin or other statin. Now, there are medication alternatives to statins. Um, for example, azetamide or Zetia, which acts on the gut. Um, similarly, another medicine called benfidoic acid. Now, these two medications and even in combination can actually have some benefit in reducing cardiovascular risks. There are injectable medications which can also lower the cholesterol. So for example, Repathor or Evolocumab, they have formulations that can be injected either every two weeks or every four weeks, or Alirocumab, also known as Praluent, which can be injected every two weeks. Now these medications, they absolutely plummet LDL cholesterol levels to, to pretty low levels. One newer medication is called Inclisiran. It's also called Lecvio. And it's a medication that actually can be infused every six months and similarly can get cholesterol levels down to very, very low levels. However, it is a newer medication and it doesn't have any data to show that it reduces risk of 
heart attack or stroke at this point. But that said, given that there is a lower risk of heart attack and stroke, the lower your LDL cholesterol is, it probably will have that impact once those studies are done. Now to wrap up, um, success with a plant-based diet. That's a picture of me at the um, Makapia Games in Israel in 2013. I used to be an avid triathlete. I now am a mom to a toddler, so I don't quite have the time to do those things. Um, a plant-based diet can keep your heart healthy for years to come. It's never too late to start. And a plant-based diet goes hand in hand with good medicine for long-term health. And I'm going to give a plug for my book. It is available on amazon.com. You can connect with me on my website, um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, or if you happen to be in California, I am taking new patients. I see patients in my office. I can even see patients um, via telemedicine who are in the state of California, which is where I am licensed. And um, thank you for listening into my talk. And I will eagerly take any questions at this point. So. Thank you so much, doctor, for the very informative presentation. So I see that you've given everybody the information on where to get your books and how they can reach out to you. So that's great. So we are now going to begin the Q&A session uh, that uh, that we open up to the audience. Um, just want to go over a few things so the audience understands how to go about this. So we don't take questions directly from the chat. Instead, we ask everyone to virtually raise their hand if you're not sure how to do this. What you need to do is click on the reactions button at the bottom right of the Zoom window. It's actually the second button from the right. Then click on the raise hand function in the menu that pops up. We will take your questions in the order in which they are received. When it's your turn, I will mute you and prompt you to state where you're from and to ask your question. We ask that everyone keep their questions brief and on topic. We will then mute you. If you do have a follow-up question, you can go ahead and raise your hand again. And if we have time, we will go ahead and uh, and select you as well. So I see that we have a few questions here. So the first one is from Cheryl. Cheryl, please state where you're from and ask your question. Hi, I'm from Santa Rosa, California. And my question is about the supplement CoQ10. And if I heard Dr. Joel Kahn correctly earlier in this in this event, I think he said that he recommends those for everyone over 70. And I wasn't clear whether he meant everyone who's his patient or everyone in general. But I guess my question for you is, what is your opinion of CoQ10 and who should be taking it, if anyone? It's, it's a great question. In coenzyme Q10, I wouldn't as a blanket state that everybody should be, everybody over 70 should be taking it. There are, there are some benefits to coenzyme Q10. It is a medication that can be beneficial for heart failure. It also can have some effect on lowering blood pressure. So I think there's a role for coenzyme Q10 in, in the right, in the right person, but I don't think there should necessarily be a recommendation that everybody should be on coenzyme Q10. Thank you very much, doctor. Our next question is coming from Judy. Judy, please state, please state where you're from and ask your question. Hi, uh, my name is Judy and I am from Philadelphia, PA suburbs. And I um, tend to have high blood pressure. It's not always high. Um, I'm underweight. I'm whole food plant-based for two years. Um, I think probably it's mainly toward the anxious and uh, maybe my peripheral circulation's not good. I'm, I'm 
I just turned 69. Um, I don't have a lot of uh, fats or anything like that. Um, I, I don't know, it could be like white coat, but sometimes when I take it at home with my home machine, it's a little bit elevated, not extremely. Like today, I just took it, it was 125 over 82. So that wasn't bad, um, but it's almost always high in the doctor's office. Fortunately, my primary care is not rushing to put me on medication. And um, one of the doctors on this um, program, as well as I've heard otherwise, um, Dr. McDougall recommends adding um, vinegar to vegetables to get the most out of nitric oxide to absorb that, um, which could also benefit your um, blood pressure. I'm just wondering your thoughts on that and if you had any other suggestions. It, okay. Um, so I'm glad to hear that you are working with a, a doctor who is paying attention to your blood pressure. Um, I don't know about adding vinegar to your foods. I, I don't know that that's going to make a, a big difference to be the magic bullet that's going to control your blood pressure. I do encourage you to follow up with your doctor and continue to work with him or her to make sure that your blood pressure is is under good control in whatever ways you do that, whether that be lifestyle or whether you ultimately are going to benefit from being on a medication. Thank you, doctor. The next question is coming from Stephen. Stephen, please state where you're from and ask your question. I'm from Buffalo. And my question is, uh, I've been using AMLA powder for a while. And most recently, my Total cholesterol was 142. I've heard from the Framingham study, if you below 150, you have a very low risk of heart disease. What's your take on that? Okay, so good question. Amlet powder, there have been some studies that have looked at it that do demonstrate that it does lower cholesterol, similar to some of the lower intensity statin medications. So yes, it does lower your cholesterol as to what your risk is in general, the lower your cholesterol, the lower your risk um, to better refine that risk though, probably if you would want to know a little bit more detail about, about what your risk is, it's good to talk to your doctor who knows some of the other details of, of your health history, but I, but that's great. It's good to know you were able to get your cholesterol down with amla powder. All right, great. So the next question is coming from Marley. Marley, please state where you're from and ask your question. Good afternoon. I'm Marley from Hollywood, Florida. And I apologize because I came into the, the presentation a little late. I'm not sure if you covered it. Um, what do you recommend for somebody with a high LP little a diet-wise? That is a great question. So what do I recommend for somebody who has an, a high LP little a? Now, just to educate the audience, high LP little a or lipoprotein A is a, a marker or an enhanced risk factor, which can indicate having a higher risk of heart attack or stroke, regardless of what, what the cholesterol levels are. Um, we don't have great data on what to do with just LP little a alone, whether there's um, any specific benefit of using a medication to specifically target the LP little a. Um, it is important to know, even if you do have high LP little a, what's your 
full lipid panel is along with your other risk factors. And then taking all of that into consideration, um, deciding on, on a treatment, whether it be lifestyle alone um, versus lifestyle plus medications to lower cholesterol to reduce risk. Thank you, doctor. So um, I'll, I'm gonna ask some questions here. Do you recommend stents and bypass surgery? And when do you treat with lifestyle? And when do you treat with, with traditional medical interventions? Okay, that's a pretty broad question. I, I recommend lifestyle for everybody, no matter what. Um, do I recommend stents and bypass surgery? Um, I, I would say not unless you absolutely need them. Now, the things about the thing about um, stents and even bypass surgery is that if you have um, stable angina or stable chest pain um, over time with exertion, a stent or a bypass isn't necessarily going to reduce, reduce your risk of dying or reduce your risk of heart attack or stroke. Um, if you are having a heart attack, a stent or a bypass surgery most certainly can reduce your risk of dying. And in those circumstances, there is no question that is something that will provide benefit. Um, as for other situations, there's certain, there's certain nuance to them with respect to the anatomy of the arteries, with respect to the ejection fraction or strength of the, the pumping function of the heart. And, and that's where, where a sit down conversation with, with a cardiologist to tease out some of that nuance is important. But in general, lifestyle is important for everybody. Um, stents save lives in the setting of a heart attack or a heart attack. They do not necessarily, they do not save lives in the setting of somebody with stable angina. They just prevent heart, they prevent heart related chest pain. So only in an acute attack, basically, is what you're saying. I would say so. Okay, thank you. So um, saturated fat. Um, what foods have it, what foods should we avoid, um, even, you know, some plant foods such as palm and coconut oil have it, should we avoid it? Should we avoid the oils? There's a, there's a kind of a, a debate in, internally in the, in the plant-based community about, uh, like Esselstyn on one end, who is completely against, you know, oils and, and doesn't even, isn't a big fan of nuts and seeds. And then you have, uh, Furman who's kind of in between with, with seeds and you have, um, um, Brian Clement and uh, Dr. Gabriel Cousins, who think that uh, oil is good, um, olive oil in particular, not necessarily mm -hmm. coconut oil. What are your thoughts on that? Okay, good question. So when it comes to oil, um, I don't think we've got enough data to say that people need to shun all oils from their, their diets. I mean, oils are high in, in fats and they're dense in calories. Um, and they perhaps can be inflammatory, but there, there is some data showing that there is some benefit to the heart from certain, um, you know, monounsaturated oils like, like olive oil. So, you know, when I advise my patients, I tell them, you know, oil is reasonable, you know, you know unsaturated, you know, unsaturated oils and, um, in, in small portions. Do studies show that more consumption of animal products and dairy increase disease? And which studies would you refer us to? Um, I think that um, in general, that, that animal foods 
mm-hmm. tend to have more saturated fats. And I apologize, I just realized I didn't answer your part of the question about saturated fats. So yes, animal foods do tend to have high, higher quantities of saturated fats. Diets that have more saturated fats, whether they be animal foods, whether they be plant foods, they do increase risk of, of heart disease. Okay, great, thank you. And um, what you mentioned something about uh, a silent heart attack. What do you mean by that? And how does someone know that they had a silent heart attack? It's a good question. So it is, you know, as I mentioned, 20% of all heart attacks are silent. So I think that people may have symptoms and may just brush them aside. So for example, they may for a couple of days just feel kind of lousy. They had this chest pain and they just kind of wrote it off as like having a cold and they were a little short of breath. And then, you know, a few weeks later, they may they may feel perfectly fine or a few weeks later, they may feel even worse and lousy. So, you know, again, people may not necessarily be listening well to their bodies and they may have symptoms of, of a heart attack and may not even realize it. That said, there are certain conditions such as diabetes where you don't necessarily have the, the nervous system of, of others. And you may actually have a heart attack and literally just feel, feel nothing at, at the time of the heart attack. And then, okay. And then how do you, how do you know in retrospect though, that you had one? Is there in retrospect, you can know, um, an EKG, a simple EKG can demonstrate abnormalities suggestive of that an echocardiogram or an ultrasound of the heart, or even if one were being more invasive, a coronary angiogram could show an artery that may have been completely blocked off. Great. Thank you. Given the correlation between um, weight and heart disease, what are your thoughts on bariatric surgery for weight loss, as well as the diabetic drug Ozempic? Okay, so weight loss, um, for somebody who is obese, weight loss will help to lower blood pressure. It will help to lower cholesterol, presuming that the weight loss is achieved with with a healthy diet. there is some data on bariatric surgery or surgery to specifically lose weight. And there have been good, good outcomes in, in some of those studies demonstrating that there is reduced risk of heart disease, reduced risk of, of diabetes after a bariatric surgery procedure. Okay, thank you. Um, what is the ideal cholesterol? And, and also um, some, some of the doctors that, w- that we've had um, over the past week have um, said that higher cholesterol is good for brain functioning. So there's, you know, there, we're hearing low cholesterol for heart, good, you know, higher cholesterol right. for brain. What are your thoughts on the ideal cholesterol and that? Dichotomy? Right. There is no mainstream peer reviewed science that suggests that you need to have a high cholesterol level for your brain to function. Um, there are populations of people who are born with abnormal genes, for example, an abnormality in the PCSK9 gene that just based on their genetics have exceedingly low cholesterol levels. And this, these populations don't have problems with brain function, and they actually have much lower risks of, of heart attacks and strokes. So um, I don't think that we need to have high cholesterol to have the brain function. Okay, thank you. Um, and what are your thoughts on the, the keto diet? There are authors out there, you know, doctors writing books, um, pushing the keto diet and, um, you know, what are your thoughts on the evidence that they provide for, for the keto diet? The ketogenic diet was initially designed for children with epilepsy. Um, and that's 
where it functions well to reduce the risk of seizures in, in, in a specific subset of children with epilepsy. Now, um, ketogenic diets for weight loss, they, they will lead to loss of weight, but the way in which they achieve that weight loss is with a diet that is very high in, in saturated fats, um, you know, from, from animal products, which in general increases cardiovascular risk. So an animal-based ketogenic diet is going to increase risk of, of heart disease. Okay. Thank you. Um, approximately how many patients have you seen, uh, for heart disease and, and treated with a plant-based diet and, and what percentage has gotten better through the plant-based diet protocol? I would say that just about everybody that has adopted a whole food plant-based diet has, has done very well, um, and been event free since adopting that whole food plant-based diet. In other words, hasn't needed another stent, hasn't had a heart attack or a stroke. There's one patient I can think of off the top of my head who adopted a plant-based diet and then went on to have progression of, of, of his disease, but he's also somebody who wasn't taking the aspirin and the statin that was recommended um, for him. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I, th I believe you mentioned uh, supplements earlier in your presentation. What what are your thoughts? Um, you know, during the talks, curcumin came up. I think you mentioned some other some other um, supplements. What do you think of curcumin? What do you think of other supplements? What would you say that the top ones that we should uh, be looking to add into our, our lifestyle? Um, in general, um, I mean, there are supplements that are, that are available that can that can promote health. So there are supplements that may contain bergamot, for example, that definitely can, can lower cholesterol. Curcumin definitely has its effects as an anti-inflammatory. As for whether or not, I, I don't know that I would recommend that everybody needs to take one of those things, but they, they are things that, that do have benefit. I think more important than any one individual over-the-counter supplement is the is in general what our diet is and how much we move and how, how well we manage our stress. Those are far more important than choosing to add particular supplements to our diet. Great. Thank you. So we, we often hear cholesterol and triglycerides kind of mentioned in the same breath. Um, what, what's the ideal number for triglycerides? What's the, the difference between triglycerides and cholesterol? Um, does it tell us anything different? Um, right. So triglycerides are the fat in the blood. Um, the laboratories that check these tend to suggest that a triglyceride level under 150 is ideal. And I think that, 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 that is, is reasonable when it comes to LDL cholesterol in general, lower is, is better. Um, however you, you achieve that, whether that be with lifestyle alone or with lifestyle plus medication. Great. Thank you. Um, so many speakers recommend no salt. A few of them recommended some salt in their diet, but many of them say no salt. There's a book out called the salt fix, which recommends salt. Um, it says, uh, it, you know, so it, it says the salt is, is good. What are your thoughts on salt? Should it be avoided? Should it be, um, is it something that we don't need to consider? Is it something that, uh, that we definitely need to consider? Well, a high sodium diet should definitely be avoided. So minimizing foods that are higher in salt, restaurant foods, 
um, those are, you should definitely be minimizing those high earth salt foods. Um, whether or not you need to go to an exceedingly low level of sodium, the answer is probably no. And there've been some recent studies that have, that have looked at that question, particularly with heart failure patients, um, that we don't necessarily need to be super low on, on salt. Is super low okay? I, I think it depends on, on the person. Honestly, if you feel unwell on, on a diet that is exceedingly low on salt, then that may not be the right thing for you. Okay. Thank you. Um, you had mentioned um, smartly processed foods like tofu and milk. What do you mean by smartly processed? I don't know that I said milk as I, I may have oh, said. No, 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 plant, plant. I'm sorry. Plant -based milk. Yes. Yeah. So smartly processed means like foods that have a minimal amount of processing. So taking soybeans and turning them into tofu or turning them into to soybeans, as opposed to, you know, heavily processed things like potato chips that go through several steps and are dried out and salted and whatnot. So, or foods that have a lot of added oils and, and salts and, and sugar to them. So minimally processed or smartly processed. Okay, thank you. Um, and I'm gonna talk about medical school. So uh, does medical school, you know, so supposedly like Michael Greger did a uh, um, some videos on this. Uh, saying that um, that doctors actually have less information about or are less correct on nutritional information than the general public. What are your thoughts about what kind of information medical students are getting on on nutrition? Um, is it is it accurate or is is it industry biased or or is it just lacking? It's a good question. I can recall back in the day when I was in medical school, it's been more years than I care to admit. I, I finished medical school in 1999. We did actually have a nutrition course. It was throughout our first and second years of medical school. It was fairly limited in scope. And the focus was more on nutritional deficiencies and individual micronutrients and less focused on the um, the, the, the diet of the Western world and the diseases that it can contribute to. There's a lot that has to be covered in medical school and the, the board examinations that need to be taught to. Um, so unfortunately, the excuse is that there's not a lot of room in the medical school curriculum for, for nutrition. I think that unfortunately, a lot of the medical schools still do not provide much, if any, education about nutrition. So as a consequence, um, doctors can get through medical school, not knowing too much about nutrition. I would say that what, what I've learned has been, you know, mostly what I've learned on my own pursued knowledge on my own, as opposed to what I had learned through my, my medical training. Okay. Thank you. So, um, so in the vegan community, B12 is, is considered very important. There's a little bit of a controversy of what the best kind is. One, do you recommend a B12 supplement to your plant-based patients? And what is the best kind for, uh, for people to take? I do recommend that my patients do, who are on a strictly vegan or strictly plant-based diet should be taking a, a B12 supplement, um, as part of their, their daily nutrition. Um, as for specific B12, I, I honestly don't recommend one, one versus another. Okay. Thank you. Um, you said that, uh, that, um, 
a pulse of 120 over 80 is normal. Does that mean healthy? And does that mean ideal? A what? blood pressure that is naturally lower than 120 over 80 in somebody who's not on medications, um, that is ideal. If, you're, if your blood pressure is naturally under 120 over 80, your risk of heart attack or stroke is, is significantly lower than somebody whose blood pressure is naturally above those levels. Right, great. Um, is grass-fed beef better than non-grass-fed beef? Is there any mean? Is there any uh, research that supports that? So many people are, you know, think they're being healthy because they're eating grass-fed beef. What are your thoughts on that? Um, to, to, to my knowledge, um, there is not a substantial difference between beef that is fed grass and not fed grass. Okay, thank you. And are what do you think about the new the new meats, the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger? Are they okay for our health? Are they at least better than than the the foods that they're substituting? Well, first off, I I will freely admit I think they're delicious, um, but um, to be truthful, looking at their ingredients, I mean they're not ideal you know, foods that should be consumed on a daily basis, and they have added oils and I think. One of them contains a fair amount of coconut oil and saturated fat, and both contain a significant amount of sodium. So I think they're a reasonable portion. They can be a reasonable component of, of a plant-based diet, as long as they're not consumed on a daily basis. I think that one of the companies did do a study looking at cholesterol levels or of consuming their plant meat versus consuming hamburgers. And I think they note, they've noted a difference where the, the plant meat had better health outcomes off the top of my head. I don't, I don't recall the details of the study, but in general, I think if, if you love animals, sure, it's, it's okay to incorporate a, a, a plant burger here and there sparingly in your diet. And have you seen any research on on um, what happens to the people who are eating the the carnivore diet or the one that's like basically all meat? Um, I don't know if I'm familiar with any research, um, but it just intuitively, it doesn't seem like a good idea. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That that makes sense. That makes sense. And uh, what are your thoughts on colonoscopies? You know, it's sort of outside your, your... Well, a little outside the scope of my presentation. Um, I think that colonoscopies are an important part of um, reducing risk of, of colon cancer um, for, the, for the right risk person. At this point, there's something new called Cologuard, which um, is good for people over the age of 45 who are at relatively low risk of, of colon cancer. And those who are at higher risk of colon cancer, a colonoscopy is an invasive procedure that's relatively low risk to look for early signs of, of colon cancer, which is a preventable cause of death. Thank you. Um, are there pharmaceutical drugs that actually contribute to heart disease that people should watch out for? Um, I know that there are a few chemotherapeutic agents that raise cholesterol. Um, I do have one of my patients who's on one of those medications. He also has carotid artery disease. So he has vascular disease and this medication that is to keep his lung cancer in check is also 
greatly raising his, his cholesterol levels. So um, in order to reduce his risk, I have him on um, an injectable medication in, for cholesterol in addition to his, his statin medicine. Um, that is the one medicine that I can think of that specifically increases risk of heart disease in, in a substantial manner. Thank you. Oh, and, and also some of the HIV agents as well can um, lead to abnormalities in the lipids. Okay, thank you. Uh, well, are, there, are there alternatives to those drugs for those particular um, diseases? Or are they kind of stuck with consequences? I, I honestly don't think so. I don't know a little outside of the scope of what I do as a cardiologist. Sure. Um, are, um, so I mentioned doctors and with regard to their nutritional knowledge. What about dietitians? Um, do you, like conventional dietitians, do they seem to understand the power of a plant-based diet with regard to heart disease and, and other uh, health factors? It's a good question. In my limited experience in interacting with, with dietitians, I think at least the ones that I speak with are, are more aware of plant-based diets are and are less likely to poo-poo them as being something that, that's a fad and to recognize that there is substantial health benefits to adopting a plant-based diet. Thank you. And um, a, a lot of people think they're eating heart healthy when they eat fish. Are there are there benefits? Are there health benefits to eating fish specifically with regard to heart disease? If you look at somebody who's consuming a standard American diet and you add fatty fish to that standard American diet, their heart health is potentially going to improve based on some of the studies looking at that. Um, the dilemma with consuming fish is that yes, it has omega-3 fatty acids, which are healthy for the heart, but also I mean, there, there are potential negatives to consuming fish, such as the, the toxins and the mercury and things that are in the, the water that the fish consumes and is in their body. And also fish have a, a considerable amount of cholesterol in them as well. All right, great. Thank you so much, doctor. Okay, that that's going to conclude our our Q and A session. So thank you so much. Oh, actually, we got one more question. So I'm going to give uh, Steve Friedman uh, the the opportunity to ask one more question. Steve, please state hi, where, you, where hi, you're from and ask your question. Hi, Doctor Shankman. Steve from Rockaway, New York. Um, just a quickie. Where do you stand on the controversy on healthy? plant-based fats when it comes to cardiovascular protection. We've got Dr. McDougall on one side, we've got uh, Dr. Esselstyn also, and then on the other side, we've got Dr. Furman. Um, it's cardiovascular health, it's brain health. That's my question. Okay, great. Um, we need to consume fats. Um... The data for very low fat diets, I mean, you've got you know, Ornish's small trial, you've got Esselstyn's small trial. Um, but in general, I am not somebody who's advocating for a very low fat diet. I don't think it's, quite frankly, it's not necessarily palatable, not necessarily satiating. I think, you know, consuming healthy fats is a beneficial thing. So fats from, from avocados and, and from, from nuts, can be beneficial and can be helpful. Great. Thank you so much, doctor. It was very informative. So we're really going to quickly open up the mic so everyone can also in the audience uh, say thank you. So you'll hear all <laughs> concophony of, uh, of thanks. So. Thank you. 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 Thank you.